If you have your Bibles this morning, yes, you probably have guessed it, Proverbs chapter 22 and uh, verse 6. Uh, just let me uh, bring out, we have a number of visitors today. Uh, we have been coming through the book of Proverbs, and we have been uh, coming through it almost verse by verse. And uh, last week we got into Proverbs 22, verse 6, which is the verse that says, Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old he will not depart from it. Uh, I told our church that we're going to stay here for, oh, I don't know, I don't really have a time, at least eight weeks, maybe more, um, because as you look around, you can see our church is, is very, very young, and uh, we have a lot of young couples, we have a lot of singles that uh, won't be single too much longer, and, uh, you know, a lot of people that have got kids that are teenagers and junior high, and um, in fact, the Tara and Tobin are back today with their little little baby back there. It was good to see them, and uh, it's, it looks great, and we're all excited about that. But as you look around, they're just, it's a very young, thriving church with a lot of young couples, a lot of a lot of young singles, a lot of people who, uh, you know, young families and families that have been with me now for 10, 12, 13 years and your kids are in the teenage years. And so uh, we're going we're gonna to talk about this. We started last week <coughs> and we uh, had lesson one and now this is the second week and it's, it's lesson two. And, and I want to say something here before I start and I appreciate you being here today. Uh, but let's let me say this. Uh, today... Today could be the day in the beginning of the real change in your family. Uh, I can't stress that enough or overemphasize this enough today. Uh, if you're looking, if you've been frustrated, if you have been like you're climbing up a hill with your kids, um, this could, can well be your answer today. Uh, and I want to walk you through this, and I want you to listen very carefully. Today could be the day that changes uh, your life. I had uh, uh, somebody ask me this morning, you know, what, uh, uh, they're not married, they don't have any kids, and he, he asked me, he says, you know, what can I expect or what should I be looking for in what you're uh, laying out? And I told him, I said, you know what, learn everything that I'm laying out today, because someplace in your life, whether at work, whether at home, or one of your friends, somebody's going to have problems with their kids, and you're going to be able to be used of God. So there's something for everybody here. This ministry here is not just my ministry, it's our ministry together. I'm reproducing myself in you. That is a scary thought, I do understand that. But, and it's a, it's a, you know, a burden you'll have to bear. But we need to reach others. This is why like, things like New Year's Eve is such, a, is such a great thing. You came the first night on New Year's Eve, what, five, six years ago? Eight. Eight years ago. Time <laughs> oh. <laughs> flies when you're having fun. Did you think that was funny that I just six and it was eight? Oh, what's the deal with these people? She got saved that night. Amen. And uh, boy, she's one of our primary people, so we appreciate it. So it does work. And uh, we, we, I encourage you to do that. Now, last week, we started Proverbs chapter 22, verse 6. And as I said, we will be here for a little while. And just so we can kind of bolt it all together, uh, I told you uh, that this was Proverbs 22, 6, the greatest promise and principle in all the Bible that you and I as a Christian have a 100% guarantee that our children, your children, uh, will be all that God wants him or her to be. The Bible talked about it, we looked at it last week, that our children is God's heritage. Many times we think they're our heritage, and they are in a sense, but not in an eternal sense. They're God's heritage, and the Bible says that they're his reward. In other words, they carry on that unbroken chain. 
And this promise is just as sure as any promise as our salvation. Titus chapter 1 verse 2 says, In hope of eternal life, which God who cannot lie promised before the foundation of, of the earth. And I want to tell you something. God who cannot lie promised you salvation if you would do it the right way. We know that right way is laid out in the book of Romans. God who cannot lie promised that. And God promised that your children and my children could grow up to be God's fruit and God's heritage if we just did the right things the right way. And the verse says, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. I gave you last week uh, three key words and phrases in that verse that we kind of focused on that we're going to build on today. First off, I gave you the word to train. And I told you that you don't raise children, you train up children. And we talked about that. I talked about the way. There's a way. There's a right way and a wrong way. And we, we talked about that. And then I gave you the phrase that at the end of the verse, and it will not depart from it when he is old. The guarantee that what you train them in, that training will stay with them forever. And today, I want to take you to the next level and the next step of that training. I gave you some key words that we're going to use all through our study uh, in our series. The word reinforcement. That's an incredible important word when it's dealing with training up children. Reinforcement. We talked about short-term and long-term invaluable in understanding the big picture of dealing with your children. We talked about being proactive instead of reactive. And I told you, when it comes to training up children, you never want to be behind where you've got to catch up to your kids. We talked about react versus respond. Many times, parents, a kid will do something, they'll react to it. When we use the Bible principles, then we respond to it. And we'll, we'll show you how to use that as we come through. And last week, I, I, I showed you the importance of context. Getting your family, your children, into a biblical context that you have the understanding of what you as a parent, your job is, and what everybody expects of everybody within the family. And we're going to talk about that today, too. And uh, I, I, I have put together for you a plan. And I worked it with two or three families this last week, and uh, I'm telling you something. I have put together, if you want to come to the place right now today, and your child is, you know, six or seven or eight or nine, even if he's younger than that, you can begin some things to do. But if they're at that age where you can communicate back and forth together, I have the greatest single plan that you'll ever do if you want to start today and change your family. Now, we're talking about this, and I know in any church, in any scenario, and ours is no different, you have all kinds of parents who, who they, they, it sounds wonderful, but when it comes down to doing the work, you know, it's a lot like discipleship or working with people. All of you people that work with me in the people ministry, all of you have had people that, that came in with problems, and when you start discipleship, it's the greatest thing in the world, or discipleship too, or dealing with their problems. But you know as well as I do, when the rubber finally meets the road and they've got to face some things in their life and change some things, then it's a different story. And where we cannot afford to let down as parents is with our children. And I want to talk to you about that today, and, and I want to show you as we go through here uh, how to put the greatest ground-level plan today, starting this week, and your child, that will be the beginning of turning whatever scenario around the right way. You know, I told you of how the family 
was and still is God's plan for worldwide evangelism. You know, when you go through the Bible, you'll find that God established his three institutions. He established civil government. You'll find that beginning in Genesis chapter 10, but it's really detailed for you in Romans chapter 12. You'll find the local New Testament church. That was the second institution that he put into effect, and that'll be the book of Acts. You can actually see it come into play. And then the book of Ephesians will define that for you. And the third thing was marriage and the family. And we find the first marriage and the first family in Genesis chapter 3, and then it goes from there. In every case, the strength and longevity of any nation will be only as strong as the families that, that make it up. Our nation, from 1700 to 1960, let's just take that one's a good round number, was a great nation, and uh, not just because of the right Bible that it had. Obviously, through that right Bible, and our country was different back then in the first part of the century, families had values. Those, the country was based on a Bible and a belief in God, still had values in this country. And uh, whether they were saved or lost, there were values of the family. But what you begin to see in the 20th century, and I want you to see this because of where I'm going today. When we start to begin to see the 20th century move on, we begin to see the, def- the decline of the family in that century. In World War I, early in the 1917, in the first 17 years of this century, the country was very solid. We went to war with Germany and the Axis powers, and we won that war. In 1940-41, we got involved in World War II. The nation rallied behind the troops. They rallied behind the cause of worldwide fascism. And two nations, Japan and, and Germany, wanted to take over the world. And we won both of those wars. In 1950, we found ourselves in Korea. The end of World War II, the Japanese had taken over uh, all, of, uh, uh, all of Korea, and uh, they stopped right about at the end uh, of World War II. The Americans went in, the Russians came down, and it took off and divided North and South Korea at the 39th parallel, the 38th parallel. And, and what we see then is the beginning of the, the intervention of the communists wanting to take over all of Korea. So we got into Korea. This is 1951, 52, and 53. We didn't win that war. In fact, we're still at war technically with Korea. There was never an armistice signed. There was never a peace treaty. We just kind of stopped, put up a line at the parallel, and went home to lunch. Nothing has really changed. It could break out tomorrow. We still have thousands of troops over in Korea on that line at the demilitarized zone. We lost that one. And then around 1960, Vietnam came in. Vietnam came in because the French was in Vietnam. There again, at the end of World War II, the Japanese had, had, uh, had, uh, had Vietnam. And after that, the communists move in, and it goes communist, and then the French go in to stop it. it they get slaughtered, and then, here we go, we go in. And we lost that war. My point is simply this. As the countries and its values and the families declined, so did everything in America. We won World War I. We won World War II. Korea, we didn't win. Vietnam, didn't we didn't win. And I'm going to tell you right now, we're in a war over in the Middle East that we claim to have won, but that is going to be an ongoing war that's never going to be over. 
The 1960s saw the beginning of the end of not just America as we know it and loved it, but also the family. We've been 60 years now, uh, for around 1960, we had been 60 years now with, with, without a Bible in this country. And we began to see the effect of how when you lose a Bible, the country goes, the family goes, churches go, and we saw the integration of music and drugs and sex and all the collapse of the family values and then ultimately the collapse of the family. I want you to understand why you're facing the problems you're facing with your children today. When I was a kid, when I was in junior high school, when I was 10 or 11, 12 years old, hey, you know what? I didn't know anything about the birds and the bees. We still played army. We still did this. We still that. It wasn't until you got into high school that you found out that there was what was really going on, if you know what I'm talking about. You do know what I'm talking about, don't you? Okay. Today, they're in the fourth grade. In the fourth grade, fifth grade, they're talking about having sex. They know all the terminology. How did that happen? I want you to understand why your children are up what they're up against today. And I want you to better understand how you and I can battle that. There was a movement back then in this country, a movement, a really a revolution against any established authority. A movement of young men and young women. And it always starts, and it started back in the 60s, and it will always start wherever. It always started on the college campuses. When the war in, in El Salvador blew up and the communists were trying to take over, it started in the university. Every time the communists want to take over and they want to grab the minds of young men and young ladies, they will always go to the institutions of higher learning. Every revolution you ever saw in your life started with young men and young ladies whose minds were fresh that somebody who should have been teaching them the truth taught them something else. And you know what? It ain't no different in Bible colleges. It ain't any different. You send a kid off to Bible college who believes the Bible, he'll come back four years later not believing it. You know why? Because that's where the devil works. He's no dummy. We're the dummies. And this... This controversy in the 60s, it was built around the war in Vietnam, which was a very unpopular war. That was my war. It was some of the other older guys in here. It was your war, too. Uh, it was a movement against that war. But more than that, it was a movement against the government. It was a movement against society in general. It was, a, it was a movement against any established rule of law or authority. There were young men uh, back in World War II when the war broke out. There were guys standing in line to fight for their country. Same way in World War I. Korea came along too quickly after the other one. Nobody wanted to go. But in Vietnam, nobody wanted to go. They burned in their draft cards. There was hundreds and thousands that moved to Canada to get out of the draft. I, I, I have to explain. You young guys don't know what the draft is. That's not an open door with the wind blowing through. <laughs> Back in my day, everybody that was 18 years old had to register for the draft. And then you got called, and every able young man had to serve at least two years military service. I think that's a good thing. Maybe not today, but back in the day it was. I wouldn't advise anybody going to the military today. 
But I think back then it was good because this country had some values. I mean, when you went into the Army or the Marine Corps or the Air Force or the Navy or whatever you went in back then, uh, it, there was still some value to the thing. They're not even allowed to cuss at you anymore. You'd be to see the list of words I got that I never knew anything about that I learned. Haven't used them, but I got them if I need them. There was a movement back then. They burnt down buildings. They had riots in the streets. The riots were on the college campuses. They burned out dormitories, burned out libraries. They hated the police because the police represented establishment of law. So they would, they would throw rocks and, and all kinds of things at the police. They, this is where the riots really started. They'd overturn and burn police cars. They were against any authority that, that stood up for any values. The word was free love, have sex with everybody. The music at the time reflected the, the revolution at the time. Remember, you ever see, you still see a few, but remember that guy, I can't remember his name, Raphael something. He was the guy in Cuba that you see on his T-shirts all the time now. Yeah, 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 yeah. That was very popular back then. Why? Because Cuba had just went through a communist revolution to overthrow established authority. And they were wearing those shirts. It was incredible. Woodstock. Woodstock was a great, uh, a, a big uh, concert that was nothing more than a cesspool. It was unbelievable. And the rule of the day was that men wore their hair like a woman down to the back, which is fine if that's what you want to do. I've had people ask me, you know, I've seen them in my day where they come in with long hair, you know, down the middle of their back. And I have no problem with that. He says, do you have a restroom? I says, we have two. Which one do you need? But it's your deal. They wore raggedy old clothes. Now, you people, you have to buy your clothes with the holes in the knees now. You're really dumb. Back then, no, oh, you paid $75 for those, I guarantee you, and you didn't even get a whole pair. Take them back. Get the rest of them. They had to make them with, with zip-in holes, so if you can wear them normal and then you can untake I, That's probably asking too much. But they, they wore clothes, and, I, and they, they never took a bath. Long hair, raggedy clothes, never took a bath. You know why? Because they were against any kind of establishment. You say, take a bath, I ain't taking one. Get your hair cut, I'm leaving it grow. If you just said, let your hair grow long, they'd have got it cut. We didn't know how to handle it then. But that was the world back then. And honestly, Baptist churches didn't help any. There were, we called them hippies back then. Nobody even knows what a hippie is today. I mean, the finding the hippie today is like finding the brontosaurus in, in New York State Park. And they're just not around anymore. But they were called hippies because they were hip. They were hippites. They were hips. They were hip to the world. We were the old generation. We were the, out, of, out of touch with everything. They were the new world that was coming. Yeah, that's where it started. That's exactly where it started. And I'm telling you right now, I remember, I remember uh, the Kent State University massacre. How many remember that? You know what happened? They were rioting in the Ohio National Guard. Uh, they were sent to Kent State University in Kent, Ohio to protect the building so they wouldn't burn them down. And uh, there was like a squad of them, 10 or 12 guys. 
And uh, Ohio at the time was the only one of the only states that issued live ammunition to the, to the guys. The rest of them just give them, you just went bang and tried to scare them. But they had real ammunition. And they, they, the people were, the throngs of college, they were throwing rocks at them. They were throwing dog crap at them. They were throwing everything at them, bricks, everything. And they, they were surrounded, at these 15 guys. And they got on a little a knoll, kind of like Custer's Last Stand. And they were around them and they were throwing stuff. And, of course... They feared for their life, so they fired into the crowd. Eight, I think it was eight kids got killed. Oh, that really made everybody happy. Then it was crazy. I was in a, I was in a military station at Fort Devon at that particular time, and they were going to crash our fort. And everybody went on alert, and I, uh, I, I just went up to the gate, and they, and they had all the MPs out there with rifles with bayonets in a circle of the main gate. And, and uh, so they, there was a crowd of five, six, seven thousand 7,000 people out there. And they thought they were going to crash the gate. Little did they know. When you come in the front gate, you went down the fort two ways to the main fort. Little did they know that on this road and on that road were two, three companies of Green Berets with nightsticks. That were just waiting for them to come through that gate. They never came through, but it would have been fun. If they didn't have internet back then, they didn't have your selfie where you could take a picture, but it would have been worth seeing, I guarantee you. But that was the day that we lived in. It was the beginning of the collapse of our family unit in our society. Kids, we called them baby boomers. We called them war babies. When all the GIs come back from war, there was a boom in babies. And that was, that was, that was where they were coming from. They were born in 1945, 1950. Now they were, now they were in their teens and they were in college. And I got to tell you, you don't like the liberals, you don't like the Obamas, you don't like Hillary or whoever, and that's your deal, but I want you to understand, they are products of that generation. They were the hippies back then, the, the leaders like many of them. John Kerry. John Kerry was a Vietnam vet, he was in the Navy, he came back from Vietnam, he got caught up in this, he took his medals with all of his hippie, his long hair and all this stuff, and he threw his medals over the White House fence. And then he winds up being who he was, Secretary of State or whatever he got to be under the Obama. But that's where it comes from. I want you to understand why. It's not just enough for me for you to, to, to see the problem. I want you to understand why. The, the, the answer to fixing things in our world is to first understand why it got broke. Today we see the results of 40... 50 years of parents starting back in the 60s abandoning their family values with their children. We have today, not certainly in this church, too much, every once in a while, but across this country, we have with kids today, high school kids, junior high kids, certainly college kids and young adults out of college, a complete, total breakdown and a lack of respect for authority. You see it everywhere. Teachers in high school have to fear for them life. The kids will beat you up. And nobody will do anything. Oh, I know, we'll expel him. Wherever you go, there's violence everywhere. When I was growing up in school, the worst thing you had to worry about was somebody sneaking into the men's room and putting a firecracker down the stool. <laughs> Which was pretty neat, <laughs> if you ever saw one. Put the lid down and it's... <laughs> 
I never did it, of course, but I'm just telling you. <laughs> now you have to be afraid every time a kid goes to school, somebody's going to come in, start shooting up the place. Right. It was just yesterday, maybe the day before, somebody dressed like a student out in New Mexico went in and killed three kids. It's incredible. How did this all happen? Today we see the results of all of that. I mean, uh, a complete breakdown of any values. I mean, we have blacks and whites not only killing each other in gangs, rival gangs in the city. I mean, it's like a jungle warfare like it was in Vietnam. And every, every, more kids killed by police today than ever before. And, it, 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 and, and I get it. We always want to blame the police. Now, let me just say something. I know that just like in anything, you have bad police officers. I get that. You have bad preachers. I don't, if you, somebody to paint your house, you're going to have bad house painters. You get a mechanic to fix your car, you're going to find bad mechanic. And anything is going to be the bad. But I want to tell you something. I always ask myself when I see on the news at 6 o'clock or in the morning, this kid was shot at 4 a.m. in the morning coming out of a liquor store, and everybody wants to blame the police. I want to know, where were the parents? Where were the parents at 4 o'clock in the morning? When I was growing up, they used to come on the TV about 11 o'clock, maybe 10.30. It's now 10.30. On the, on the television, it's now 10.30. Do you know where your children are? How does that happen? I mean, we want to blame the police. He fired too quickly. Hey, his life's on the line too. He fired too quickly. Okay, it's his fault. Okay, but does not the parents have any responsibility here? Why didn't we teach them it's not right to break into a liquor store? Why did we not teach them it's not right to get high on drugs? Where, where was the parents in all of this? I remember at the Ferguson deal when that got, poor kid got shot and got killed. His dad was standing up in the car, beating on the thing, crying for everybody to burn the town down. Really? Where, where were you when that kid was going through the tough times of his life? Now, you want to blame the authority? And all these liberal politicians that <coughs> talk about, well, all, yeah, when they break into your house, you're going to want all the priest brutality on your side you can get. How did all that happen? I mean, it's underwear. You have, you know how many kids that you have growing up today that the fathers are not in their lives? They're nowhere around. And, 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 you know, and we just think that this is the way life is supposed to be. And we don't see long term. The choices that you make to have a child with a man or a woman who is not going to be in their world the rest of their life, maybe short term it was a one night wonderful stand, but long term it's going to be some problems. See, I, I grew up in these turbulent times. The 60s, the 70s, the 80s, even the 90s, up to the day. I have a context for it. And I want to tell you something. <clears throat> I learned a great lesson. I learned a great lesson during this time. I, I try to learn something from everything that happens in my life or around me. I, 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 try to, <clears throat> I try to look for those things. I try to be an investigator of history. In the 60s, I watched on television the riots, a whole generation of kids, the hippies. I watched them burn down buildings. I watched them destroy college campuses. 
I watched them burn down houses. I watched them throw rocks at police. I watched them burn police cars, attack police precincts, and set them on fire all across this country. The cry was, burn, baby, burn. And I learned a great lesson, a valuable lesson, that I'd like to pass on to you today, if I may. I watched how that a person against any authority, and this goes saved or lost, a person who rebels against authority could burn down a building, could burn down a school, could burn down a police station, but in all those years, I never saw those same people who were destroying ever build anything. And that's true of Christianity too, and it's a lesson you better learn. You'll find people who don't like churches, don't like pastors, don't like this, don't like that. <coughs> they got a problem wherever they go. <coughs> and all of their life, they go around tearing down and assassinating everybody else's character. Watch their lives, and all of their lives, their Christian life, they've never built one thing. And I learned a great lesson. When you reject truth in any established authority, whether it's in the government or the church, you'll become an expert at destroying things. Second Peter chapter 2, verses 9-15 through 15 says, The Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptation, and to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment, and to, be, and to be punished. But chiefly from them that walk after the flesh in the lust of uncleanliness and despise government, presumptuous are they, self-willed. They are not afraid to speak evil of dignities. Whereas angels, which were greater in power, and might bring not railing accusation against them before the Lord. But these, as natural brute beasts, made to be taken and destroyed, speak evil of the things that they understand not, and shall utterly perish in their own corruption, and shall receive the reward of unrighteousness, as they that count it pleasure to riot in the day. Spots uh, they are, and blemishes, sporting themselves with their own deceivings, that means they're making fun and making a game out of it. It's sport to them while they feast with you. Having eyes full of adultery that cannot cease from sin. Beguiling unstable souls and, and, and heart. They have exercised with covetous practice and cursed children. Which have forsaken the right way and have gone astray following the way of Balaam, the son of Boser, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. Now in the book of Numbers chapter 21, 22, and 23, you'll find the story of Balaam. And as you come down through there in that story and throughout the Bible, you'll find three things. And it's a great study. We don't have time to get into it this morning. But it's a great study about Balaam. First of all, in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 15, you'll find the way of Balaam. Then when you go over in Jude 11, you'll find the error of Balaam. Then when you get into Revelation chapter 2, verse 14, you find the doctrine of Balaam. <clears throat> and what you find <clears throat> is like these people... Back in the 60s and the 70s, you become an expert at destroying things, but you never build anything yourself. And in a country, in any family, without a rule of law set down by the established authority, it will become to be destroyed and it will turn into anarchy. And that's most of the families today. Now today we're going to look at our verse in another light and we're going to see, we're going to see again the training of our children uh, from a deeper aspect. We're going to build uh, week by week on this, uh, on this verse. 
And it says in 22.6 of the book of Proverbs, Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Nick, would you stand up and ask God's blessing on the offering or on the message for us today? Amen. Now, today I want to talk to you about something of vital importance. I gave you the introduction. I put it where we're at today in some kind of a context, I hope for you. But I want you to know that today we want to talk about where do you start with your child? Now, I know your children have just been born. I get that. We'll lay it all out. I'm talking about today. You're a family today with a teenager. You're a family today with a junior hire. You're a family today of somebody who's six or seven or eight or nine years old. Uh, certainly enough that they can communicate back. Where do you start with them? Where do you, what do you look for? What do you, what do you begin to do? And today, as I said, can be a new beginning for many of you and your families. And I want to talk today about building a baseline of truth in your child's life. The single most fundamental important thing that you'll ever try to accomplish with your child. Now, let me start out by asking you a question. I've watched this for 40-some years. you got two people. you got two guys. Both saved. They both get into the same sin. It doesn't matter what it is. They both get into the same sin. And, uh, you know, they go for a while... They get out of church. They get out of fellowship. It isn't just a passing thing. It it bites them for a little while. And then as the thing goes on and things begin to develop, you'll find that in time, one of them will come back and get right with God, get it right, and then start to do the right thing. The other one will never come back. One will get out there in the world and they'll get a taste of it and bust their nose and, and they'll come back. And they'll get right and they'll move on. The other one, same sin, same scenario almost, but they just keep on going and never come back. Why is that? You know, I've pondered that question. I've seen that all my life. I've seen that all my ministry life with people. And it wasn't until about 10 or 15 years ago I really figured it out. I watch people. I watch what people do. I, I, I watch circumstances. I watch how circumstances unfold. I, I, I don't ever stick my nose into your personal business. I really don't. Because my nose was used to be a lot longer than it is. So I don't stick my nose in your personal business. But I want to tell you something. I see things coming in your family's life long before you do. And I wish I could pull you aside. And see, if I was pulling you aside and telling you what a good job you were doing, we'd be okay. But I'm going to pull you aside and tell you what a rotten job you're doing, then we're not okay. I've learned that. I told you before, I used to have a white horse. Oh, I'd ride into every situation on that horse. It'd rear up, and here I was. Here he comes to save the day. I'd, I, get, I shot that horse. <laughs> Riding that horse just gave me a little bit of vertigo. Just give me a minute here. <laughs> I shot that horse. Oh, that's a good thing. The crowd just now doubled. <clears throat> I shot that horse because I found out that people, most people don't want to hear what they got to fix. They want to hear what's good about them, but they don't want to hear what's not good about them. 
And I, I learned that very early in life. But I, but I, but I, but I, I watched this thing. And the reason why one will make it and the other one won't is simply goes back to one of them, it, for the most part of their life, built a baseline of the Word of God in their life. The other one never did. And I want to tell you something. When push comes to shove, when push comes to shove and you have to, you have to, uh, you have to uh, face up to the world and you make some mistakes in life and, and, and you get out in the world, if you don't have a baseline of truth to fall back on, if you don't have a baseline of truth that you, hey, we're all going to sin. We're all going to do dumb things. What is it the difference between the one who does it and comes back and the one who just maybe comes back or doesn't come back but never gets it put together? The answer is no baseline. Now, we have a lot of guys that were in the military here. And I don't care what branch you were in. You know, as well as I do, that when you went into the Army or the Marine Corps or the Navy or the whatever, uh, you went through a period of time called basic training. There you learn the basics of military life, which is a world unto itself. In basic training, you learn a number of things. You learn your general orders. You learn military courtesy. You learn chain of command. You'd go through extensive physical training, PT. You'd go through basic drills uh, and how to march into formation and all of the things that they do. You'd go through basic marksmanship. You'd go through basic instructions through a system of discipline. And then the basic training, you begin to learn and understand military life. And two fundamental things happened when you went through basic training that you carry through the rest of your military career. One, it was a baseline of training that you could always fall back on. Whenever you got into a situation, you could always fall back on it. And the second thing, it was a foundation of basic training, truth about the military that you built the rest of your military career on. And I don't care even if you were a 30-year man. You always go back to the basics that you learned when they first took you in. First time a guy ever went into combat, scared to death, paranoid, thinks he's going to get killed, worried to death. The old vets, the old sergeants used to come around and they used to say to those guys, you know what? Just remember what we taught you in basic. Basics are important. And basic training for your child will be the baseline of biblical truth that you begin to lay in their life that when tough times come, you have the same two things. You have something to fall back on because it's in their life and then continually have something to build on. A relationship as a family based on biblical principles that you've trained them in. And I guarantee you, if a child has the proper baseline in his life, you will never lose them. Unfortunately, in most cases, the parents don't train the child, but rather the child trains the parents. I, I've seen it too many times in my ministry. I mean, I, I'm not sort of a young guy that just started. I've been in this business a while. I've seen it. I, I, I hear people all the time, and they'll call me or they'll talk to me, all my ministry, and they'll say, I need your help, Bob. My family's out of control. And I'll say to them, you know what? That's never the right thing to say to me. 
There's never going to be a time when your family is out of control, but there will be a time when you gave up control of your family. Somebody's always in control. You just don't have it right. You're not in control, but the kids are. I, I, I've, seen a, I've seen a lady, a number of them. I have one particular in mind, known her a long time. And, uh, and um, you know, she had, a, she had a child, a daughter, and uh, maybe had a son too. But anyway, she did everything for them. She, 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 she never, this, she babied and spoiled this child, gave this child everything. And the child grew up thinking that mom owed her everything. And now the, 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 the gal is probably, I don't know, 30, 40, 50 years old. I don't know. She's got a number of kids now. She's, she, she doesn't take care of the kids. Mom runs over and takes care of them. She doesn't work. Mom pays the bills. Mom does this. Mom does that. Mom does everything. Mom cleans her house. Mom pays the bills. Mom feeds the kid. Mom takes the kid. Mom does everything with her. And mom hates it. Because after all that mom does for her, you know what she does? She despises her mother. You see, it's not what you do for your child that makes them love you. You've got to get this. Your child desires a structure. They desire somebody to, to tell them what's right and wrong. Parents today cannot make the hard choices. So the child runs it. This woman will spend the rest of her life. And she gets to the point where she gets so depressed. She gets so out of, she gets so this, she gets so that. The anxiety of, I just can't do this anymore. But she'll never do what she needs to do. And I'm going to tell you something. I don't care if your child is 60 years old. There's always something you can do to reverse the process. But they won't. They're too far gone. The child has them by their grasp. And what happens now, once you have grandkids, then if you don't jump through the hoop, then she pulls the grandkids back from you. Oh, it's a neat little system. She'd always complain to her husband. And probably not nobody, would, she'd been gone a long time. Somebody, some, her, she used to complain to her husband and repeat around her, I just want to kill myself. I just want to kill myself. I asked her husband one time, I said, well, how's she doing today? Oh, she wants to kill herself. And I said, what do you think about that? He just looked at me and said, promises, promises. <laughs> Maybe he was kidding. I didn't ask. I got on my white horse and off I went. I couldn't do that a year ago. Not sure I should have done it today, but you know what? We're good. The Spirit of God's holding them bolts in today. <clears throat> I've seen it too many times. I've seen families where they have multiple kids. And it happens all the time. And one or two of the kids will, will really do what's right with the Lord. And one of the kids or two of the kids or whatever. They don't want to do what's right. And I've actually seen parents. I've actually seen parents penalize the kid who wanted to do what's right over the kid that didn't want to do what's right. They'll actually make the kid trying to do what's right feel like they're doing something wrong. I want to, wait, don't you get it? You know what the problem is? You cannot make the hard calls in life. 
As a parent, come on, as a parent, you cannot rule by popularity. You cannot. Popularity will be unfair. You got three kids, three girls, three boys, or a mixed match. You can't try to rule by popularity. You're going to lose every time. You have to rule by principles. Principles are fair for everybody. But I've seen them where they can't do that. So you have a girl, you have a guy who wants to serve God and do what's right. You have brothers or sisters who are worthless and don't want to do anything. They complain about her. They make her feel. And all they're trying to do is because that person is doing right, they're under conviction about it. So they want you to do wrong so they can feel good about the life they live. And a parent allows that to happen. What is wrong with you? That'll be a shame to yourself. I'll tell you what, if you've got three kids or four kids and five kids or six kids and you failed as a parent and, and, and four of them are screwed up and you get one that really wants to do right, you ought to be thanking God for it and using it to help the others. But you try to rule by popularity. You don't rule by popularity. You rule by principle. Popularity wanes. Principles do not. Now you come to our church. Thank you. We have a number of things here to help you on whatever level you're at. We have what we call Discipleship 1. That's 10 lessons, basic fundamentals about the Bible. We have Discipleship 2. That's 7 lessons. That's the next level up. And we encourage you to get into those, whatever level you're on or whatever you want to do. Now, why is that? Because these lessons form the baseline of Christianity, of truth in your life. The rest of your Christian life, you will build on this baseline that we lay down in Discipleship 1 and Discipleship 2, the rest of your life. Now, as a parent, that's where we need to start. Teaching them the basics, going through the basic fundamental thing, just like we do here, laying down and establishing a baseline that whenever the tough times come, Whenever they want to go to the world, wherever they want to get outside the family structure, you have, one, something to fall back on, and two, on a continual basis, something to build on. You do that, and you'll never lose your child. you never lose your child. Don't do it, <laughs> you'll lose them every time, unless somebody else does it for you. And, you know, you sit down with them, and you make it fun. You make it enjoyable. You make it memorable. And, and I'm, I'm here to help you with that. And today I'm going to show you how, in a little bit, how to absolutely take what we're talking about today and begin to build that baseline. And I'll help you put it together. When I put the discipleship lessons together, oh, it had to be about 1978, 79. It was a long, long time ago. I had four goals in mind that I wanted to accomplish. And when I've taught people how to disciple, I've always given them these four goals. And I tell them, you know, discipleship one may have 10 lessons in it, but you're not done discipling when you hit lesson 10. You're done discipling when these four goals are established in their life. And that's what goal number one was, obviously, to establish them in the Word of God. Goal number two was to establish them within our church. Goal number three was to establish them with other people. Get them to know people. And goal number four was to establish them in ministry. Bring them right back full circle. And I've watched how some of you have done that exact thing with your children and the baseline teaching. 
You've established them in the Word of God. You've established them in this church, the church family. You've taught them that as a family, you're a team. You've established them with other people. And not only that, but that is you as mom and dad. They know where to look to for any advice instead of the world. And then you've established them in ministry. You're actually serving God together in this church, working, ministering together. The training of your child has to be based on a solid baseline. It comes down to the old, as we talked about, short-term and long-term, proactive, reactive. There's a great illustration in Matthew chapter 7, a story here in 24 through 29 that illustrates exactly what I'm talking about. It says, Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man which buildeth his house upon a rock. Now, that'll be sod Bible doctrine. What's your house built on this morning? Now, this is talking about the house of Israel. I get it. But let's put an inspirational. Your house. What is your house? Is it built on a rock? Because verse 25 is going to happen to your house. The rains descended, the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon the house, and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. Now, that's what your family is going to go through right there. The rain, the floods, and the wind. And they're going to beat upon your house. Question is this. Will it stand? Did it stand? And every one that heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them not shall be likened unto a foolish man which built his house upon the sand. Now, sand. <laughs> you know what the good thing about sand is, or maybe the bad thing about it? Sand is never stable. Sand shifts. Sand shifts as the wind blows. Shifting, whispering sand. It, it, as the wind blows, it changes the sand formations. You may look, go out one week and look at a desert and see, you know, a formations. And you come back the next week and it's completely changed. You know why? Sand is not stable. Sand is easily moved by the wind. And the Bible says that when you're, you're, you're blown about by every wind of doctrine, there's no stabilization in your house. And verse 27, it will come. The rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat upon that house and it fell. Now this is, it doesn't get any easier than this. This is why families fail. This is why houses fail. You can go to church all you want. You can be a deacon, a Sunday school teacher. I don't care. It has nothing to do with any of that. That does not make you spiritual at all. What makes your house stand is what was it built on? And it came to pass when the Jesus had ended these sayings that the people were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them as one having authority, not as a scribe. There it is. The rock is doctrine and authority. Parents do not understand this. But parenting is the first line of defense in a child's life. This is the way God intended it. Now, there's a lot of confusion today with parents about uh, their children. And, and children, left to themselves, will all turn out a different ways. But I want to try to get you to understand something today. Many times a parent will have a problem with their kids, and they'll think the, the answer to that is to take them to a child psychologist or a child therapist. Now, if you want to go to the Bible, that's called the Asa principle over there in First Chronicles chapter, or Second Chronicles 16, 12. You know what the Asa principle is? Asa was the king of Israel. He got a disease in his feet. 
his walk with God. And the Bible says instead of going to God with it to get it fixed, he went to the physicians. And you know what happened? He died. Hello? You can't fix spiritual problems in your child's life at that early age by taking them to a worldly setup. All it's going to do is confuse them and give great place for the devil to destroy them in their life. Now, I, I know this, and I, some of you are going to disagree with me on this. It's okay. You can apologize to me later. We live in a day and age where children have all kinds of attention disabilities. They all have acronyms for it. ADS, DAB, ABC, <laughs> detention deficit, you know. Uh, people think I'm, 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 I'm hard hearing. I'm not. I have SH, selective hearing. <laughs> you say, you didn't hear me. Wasn't worth hearing. <laughs> I'll say it louder. What'd you say? I'm just kidding you. I'm gonna tell you something. I'm gonna give you two or three percent here. I am. Just because I realize that somewhere out there there's probably is a child with a real attention deficit. I'm gonna give you that. But I wanna tell you this. Based on the introduction I gave you and based on where this country is and why it is and the failure of parents and the family, I want to tell you right now, 97% of your kids or the kids that have attention deficit have it because of the fact there's no structure in the home. Nobody's spending any time with them. Nobody's disciplining them. Nobody's bringing them through a structure in their life to give them to them. I want to tell you something. I've been in this business almost 50 years. Now, I know I keep saying that, but that's because I've learned some things. And I'm going to tell you, in over almost 50 years of ministry, I never saw a child that had the proper baseline in his life or her life with the Word of God, where the parents did what right, ever have that problem. Amen. Ever. 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 It's always, uh, it's always come to the point where, you know, uh, you know we, we, the disorders that we have, you know, uh, and it all comes down to, to that. You know, uh, people... People fall into all kinds of, of, of issues today. And many times, parents who have made a lot of bad choices, they make a lot of bad choices, they have kids, and when the kids are at their most crucial age in their life, they have, the parents have so much baggage in they're dealing with, they can't even give the attention to the kids. That's how it happens. Now, you say, I'm not making any apologies for you on that, but I will tell you this. I don't care what your situation is. You could be in the most dire situation on this planet. There's always a way out of it if you want to do it. So I don't want to hear it. You have people who fall into depression today. Christians. Deep anxiety. You know, I have never, I'm going to say it again. In all my years, I've never found a Christian that got in anxiety and depressed that was ever having the Spirit of God use them in their life and being used of God. Who do you think Paul's therapist was? He went through much more than you and I ever go through. He was left for dead half a dozen times, had 139 stripes on his back, shipwrecked two or three times, airplane crashed. Oh, no, that wasn't him. That was somebody else. <laughs> Who did, was his psychiatrist? Who was his therapist? Where did he go? I'm going to tell you something. We forget those things and we get caught up in this undisciplined structure society of a world that has one goal, to destroy the family unit. And we fall right into it. 
I've never met a child of God in all my life that ever had the power of God in their life that ever got depressed or had anxiety. You know why? Casting all your care upon him for he cared for you. That's why. And where do you get those things? It's a conspiracy. They're hidden in the Bible. Many times, a kid will struggle with things in an early life. Things will come into his world, and because the parents are not paying attention, the parents are not the first line of defense, the world will snatch them right out from under them. You hear all the time, guys who are homosexuals or who are lesbians, and they will say, well, I've been this way all my life. I was born this way. And you see, and, and that's, a, that's, a, that's a good answer because that's the answer the world gives us today. Because the whole world and the goal of everything in this life, and your kid faces it every day, and many parents feed into this thing and then wonder why they lose their kids. The goal in all of this, of the world, will be one thing. That is to take personal accountability and responsibility away from your child. And by doing so, you have no ability to fight the issues because the world, it, 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 you're a victim. I mean, when I was growing up, when a guy was down on the street, he was called a bum. But there are no bums today. Now we've got a big $25 word. They're transients. Doesn't that sound nice? Almost want to be one. When I grew up, a drunk was a drunk. We told it like it was. He's a drunk. Now he's a chronic alcoholic. Wonderful. Back in my day, it was a dopehead. Now it's a substance abuser. Somebody said, well, he's bipolar. Does that mean he lives at the North Pole or the South Pole? Or travels between? Which is that? Truth of the matter is, you idiot, if you're saved this morning, Romans chapter 7 says every child of God sitting in this room is bipolar. You have an old nature and a new nature. Where are you going to get this thing in the Bible sooner or later? Well, I'm manic depressive. That's 1 Kings chapter 18. Well, I'm going to commit suicide. There's seven suicides in the Bible, and each one of them will lay out for you a different aspect of why somebody commit suicide. I guarantee you no Christian ever woke up the morning and God said, it's over, commit suicide. <laughs> suicide is the last bad choice in a life of a lot of bad choices. But you see it. And the fact that parents miss this great truth about their children, that the world wants to take any responsibility. It wants to make everybody a victim. It wants to say, well, I can't help what I am because it's just the way that I am, and I can't help it, you know. I'm just the way, it's just the way that I am. I, I, I am. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a, you know, I'm an alcoholic, but uh, the psychologist told me that it's in my genes. Uh, I'm a drug addict, but the psychologist told me that uh, it's a hereditary thing because all my family were... Where is the personal responsibility with sin in our lives? And parents miss a great truth 
that they are the first line of defense and the fact that every baby, every child, one, two, three, four, five, every teenager, every junior high will have an old sin nature. And you may look at that little baby in that crib and it is the sweetest, cutest thing on this planet. Inside, break it open. It's got an old sin nature as black as the sides of the bottomless pit. And it won't take you long to realize, even as a baby, they learn how to try to manipulate you. They'll cry when there's nothing to cry about just because they want to see you come back in if it works. They're planning for when they're 16 or 17. <laughs> now, every child will be different, and his, his range of sensibilities will be different of each child. But it's in these early years that parents miss the key part of, of what goes on and how important the baseline is. They raise children without understanding the children they're raising. And here's a fact. The devil doesn't miss anything. Most divorces take place, which adds a complexity, which adds a compounding, which adds drama. Most divorces take place when a child is just first born or in those early formative years that pulls the mom off task or the dad off task because they, now they've got so many of their own drama in their life. They miss the most important thing in that, world, that child's life. Now, I want to tell you how this thing works. I've heard it all my life. Well, I was, you know, I'm a homosexual, but I was born that way. You know, God made a mistake. I went down the wrong factory assembly line. I, 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 I've been this way all my life. I've had these, I've had, ever since I can remember. And we, 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 because we don't know anything about a baseline, we don't know anything about truth, we don't know anything about the first line of parenting and defenses, we buy into that. Or at least we get confused. Or we say to ourselves, I really don't understand that. Really? Well, put the video game down and get in the book. Now, as those childs are little, think back in your own childhood. We all were exposed to things as a young child. Now, I don't mean to be be crass about what I'm about to say, but I need to say it. You've all had little kids that they two or three get off someplace, and then the guy says there's a difference between my body and her body, and they start to play doctor, they start to explore, and you walk in and go, ah! And you, you know, you got to deal with it. <laughs> Dr. Fine, Dr. Howard, Dr. Fine, you know how it goes. The little kids will see things in the family. I had a guy one time that was an alcoholic, and he, was, he couldn't get over it, but he was honest about it. He said, you know what? I've been an alcoholic since I was. He says, I hear all these people. He says, I went to AA, and they told me I wasn't responsible because an alcoholic because my dad was a drunk, and my dad was this, and I didn't say anything. But you know what? My dad had nothing to do with it. When I was five years old, my dad would drink two or three bottles of beer, watching television, and go to bed. And after he'd go to bed at five years old, I'd drain the suds out of them beer bottles. That's where he started. That's where he started. That's where it all starts. Now, you see, a child will get those experiences where another child, another boy, uh, another a girl, girl with a little girl when they're little, and, and you'll see it, you'll find out about it, or something will happen, or, or something will take prior in their little life down there that they don't know how to handle, they don't know how to deal with, they don't know what to do with it. Because the parents are not building the first line of defense to stop those things in those early formative years. The first line where they get something that's wrong runs right into the brick wall of Bible foundational truth. 
And you, the parent, train them. That's wrong. Train them. Don't do that. Train them this and give them a biblical foundation. Why? When you don't do that, the old sin nature, the devil comes in, brother. He feeds that. He gives them exactly what they need. He, he cultivates that. He brings it along. So when the kid is 15, 16 year old, he says, I'm a homosexual. I've been that way all my life. He's right. Because nobody ever stopped the first line of defense to stop it. The devil will get on your child faster than you will if you let him. He'll be in his world while you're still out there partying and doing your thing. And one day you'll wake up and you'll be so far behind the game. They watch mom and dad smoke. They watch mom and dad social drink. They watch mom and dad fight. They watch mom and dad do all of the things. The deceptive life, the unfaithfulness, the, the bad relationships, the miserable, the, the endless one night stands, the uh, relationship with, with somebody that's not, uh, you're not married to. They watch that. You think they go to bed. You think they don't see it. You are an idiot. And then you wonder why they struggle. I say it again. If you didn't want to do what's right with kids, You should have bought a puppy. The devil starts in most cases earlier than the parents do in going after your child. So a child has these thoughts, he has these feelings, he has these emotions, he has these expressions, he has these experiences. But he has no idea how to process them. And no one there to help it. The parents are oblivious. They're dealing with their own issues. They're in their own anxiety attack. The parents fail to have the relationship with him or her and fail to train up that first line of defense. So a boy, by example, has the expressions, the feelings with other boys or girls with girls or or whatever in the world. Everybody will be different. By the time he hits that eight or nine, or eighteen or nineteen or fourteen or fifteen, he he's now fully committed to that lifestyle, and to his mind, it goes back all the way at the beginning. It did, but that's not the way God intended it. It wasn't his fault. It was the parents' failure to be that first line of defense, and it's just that simple. Now I'm going to give you a bonus along with this, and you better listen to me on this one. Here's another issue that will come into play. Years ago, I read a book. I can't remember who wrote it. I'd love to have it, to put it in a bookstore. It was written by some old English divine someplace back in the early 1900s or a lot of 1800s, but it was a great book. I can't remember. But he said this. He said, the job of every Christian in whatever age he lives, the job of every Christian is to find out what the prevailing spirit of that age that he's living in is, and then with everything that he has, go against that spirit. And the issue today that we're all faced with, no final authority. We're the book of judges. There's no king in Israel and every man doing what's right in his own eyes. Now a spirit, listen to me, a spirit within a generation will be the prevailing idea that will capture people's minds that goes against God's Holy Spirit. I'm going to say that one more time. 
a, a spirit in any generation will be the prevailing ideas that will capture people's minds that goes against God's Holy Spirit. And in the same way, parents in their lifestyle with their kids will project a spirit into their family. A prevailing influence that will enter into your child and develop them the wrong way. Now, now listen to me. It doesn't matter how well you try to hide your sin. It doesn't matter if they never find out about the late night beer drinking. It never finds out if they find, don't find out about this or they don't find out about that or the drugs or this. You may hide it all. You may hide it immaculately. But we project the spirit by the things that we do. And the act never has to come to light within your child. That spirit prevails. Most parents who who live double lifestyles will do a, a great job of hiding it from their kids. All the deception, the drugs, the marijuana, the real you know the relaxational drugs, the, the partying, the social drinking, the smoking. And they'd never, they'd never, never do it in front of their kids. They never want their kids to know what they do. Never. And they hide it very well. It's the spirit that you can't stop. It enters into that family. It comes forth from you. It's going to, in, in the great six questions after the judgment seat of Christ, what did he say? Whose spirit came from thee? You're either going to project God's spirit in your family or you're going to project the spirit of the world in your family. And a double lifestyle one way at church and another way on your own time. Where a parent can hide the act, the spirit that they project will be the atmosphere that destroys that child. That's a great principle for all of us. You see, there's so much to training up your children. You know why there's so much to it? Because there's so much at stake. It's God's heritage. Do you think the devil didn't read that verse? You think the devil doesn't know that the fruit of your womb is the Lord's reward? Do you think he missed that? He knows exactly what God's plan is. He knows exactly that God's plan was to reach the world through families. He knows exactly that the strength of this church will only be as strong as the moms and the dads with your kids sitting by you this morning. Or are you training them up to do that? Too bad you didn't figure it out. That's a great principle for all of us. And you, you want to keep the negative influence out of your life and your child's life to the best of your ability. And there's a reason for that. And the reason is simple. Negativity will always win. Because your old sin nature will be more dominant than your new nature. And it's easy to tip the balance that way just by one negative point. Hey, we've had people leave this church that left for their own personal reasons, which is immaterial. But they had an attitude with everything. And they have a negative attitude. And you know what? They leave this church, go on, praise the Lord. I'm happy for you. I have a good life. I'm all for you. I'm not mad at anybody. But the bottom line, the, the negative attitude they projected when some of other people still hung out with them, were part of that, and still were their friends and could not take a stand and call it what it was, their negativity 
got into your world. And some of the cases, it got into your, your children's world. And you just walk around like, oh, well, you know, they're nice people. Let me tell you something. Negativity will always win out in any positive thing in your life. Because your old sin nature will always gravitate to the negative. You have to keep the negativity to an absolute minimum in your own life and in your child's life. You have to project a positive spirit based on a foundational principle of building a baseline of truth in their life. And it takes you taking a stand. And that's another thing. Most parents cannot stand. You would be surprised at the parents who just do not like confrontation. You'd be surprised at the pastors that don't like it. I'm going to tell you something. I don't like confrontation. But I'm smart enough to know that in the ministry, confrontation is just part of the process. And as much as I don't like it, it's part of the job. As much as I don't care to do it and I don't relish doing it, at the end of the day, it's either truth or it's not truth. It's just that simple. Either we're right or we're wrong. One or the other. It's nowhere in between. Either you're right or you're wrong. It's nowhere in between. That's where we're at. And negativity will be always be the thing that will destroy anything. But it all starts with you, the parents. You be positive, you cut out the negativity, and then you keep the people out of their world that are negative toward the things of God, no matter who they may be. Where the first line of defense is in place by laying a basic foundation of truth at the earliest possible age. Then when you see that they come, then you're smarter than the problem. You have something to fall back on, and you continually are building on what you built. You have a baseline the baseline, when the thoughts, when the actions, when the ideas, when the fantasies, when the issues come up, those things can never get a foothold in your child's life because you have laid a foundation that you're watching, you're building on, that you always come back to. This is why when some people leave, they never come back. There's no baseline in their life. There's no foundational principles. God has nothing to work with. God isn't going to bring you back because of your good looks. God is not going to bring you back because of your ability. God is not going to bring you back because he likes you. God is going to bring you back because you have put something in your world that he can work with when he needs to bring you back. And you've never put it in. But you've got to have a plan. And I want to help you with it. Now, if you want to start all this in your family, here's how we do it. I started this with three families this week, and it's worked. And I don't know why I didn't see it before I even did it. Sometimes God just has to drop it out of the tree when it's right there in front of me. We're going to have eight or nine lessons Here's what I'm asking families to do. And, you know, not every family can do this because your children are too young. But when you get to that age, then do it. And there's other things that you can do. But let's say you've got a family where the kids are, you know, six or seven, eight or nine, at least on the level that you can communicate with them. You take one night a week. Only one night. One night a week. And you take and you sit around the table 
with your kids and you put on lesson one last week. You sit down together. Everybody gets a journal. Everybody gets a notebook. Everybody sits there and listens to me going through that. If you have to stop it and start it, run it back to get it again, whatever it takes, I don't care. It may take two or three times. But every member of the family writes down out of that tape what you're getting to help you be better in the family. Moms don't worry about getting what dad needs to fix. Dad don't worry about getting what mom needs to fix. Dad and mom don't get out what kid needs to fix. Kids don't get out of it what mom and dad need to fix. Everybody sit down and get out of it what you need to fix about yourself. You sit down and write down through that whole thing. Here's what I got to change to be a better father. Here's what I got to change to be a better mother. Here's what I got to change to be a better child, a son, a daughter. And as we go through this thing, you know, through this thing, uh, it's a thing where it'll help you. It'll help the moms and the dads and the children. Each member of the family writing down what you need to, what you need to do to fix you. Because the only thing that's going to fix the family and any family, you can't fix the child, you can't fix the wife. All you can do is everybody fix themselves. You know when you get arguments? When you try to fix somebody and tell them what's wrong and they're looking at all the holes in your life. Quit doing that. Don't worry about fixing them. Worry about fixing you. When you worry about fixing you, all the problems go away. You take time then in each one after you go through it. You listen to the tape, you got it down, then you take time each one, go around. And you explain to the family what I got out of this and what I'm going to work on. Dad, I, I want you to pray for me on this. Mom, I want, to, I want to do this. This is what I need. Dad, have the guts in your life to say, son, daughter, this is what I need to change. I want you to pray with me. I want you to pray for me. I'm going to pray for you. You've got to bring it back to a baseline. And you know what? Once you all go through it and you all have it laid down there and there and you're all sitting around there, Dad, you go first. You're the leader. Mom, you go second. Break the ice. Give the kids an example of what it is because they're going to be wondering what in the world they need to do. And then once you give them two good examples, let them go. Let them talk. Let everybody write down what they need, what they're going to do. Talk about it. Dialogue. Back and forth. Help each other. You do that for eight or nine weeks and give it your all and you'll have the beginning of laying a foundation in your family. You'll have something to build on. And then you can start with discipleship one or discipleship two. John Busquet just put a whole series of discipleship lessons ready for, for kids. That you can use those. And then let me know who of you are that are going to do that. Because I want to help you. I, I, I want to know the progress. I want to be there. There may be some things come up that in individual families we have to tweak a little bit. Or have to do something differently. I don't want to be left out of the process. I want you to come to me and say, we're going to do this. I'll make my own private list, and I'll pray for you. I'll help you. You can ask me, call me, meet with me, anything you want. But i got to tell you this. The key word here. The key word here is consistency. I'm only asking for one night a week. You know why? Because God knows I'd never get two. Just give me one night a week. 
one night that you call your family and you tell them basic training night for the Alexander family. 